Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. How has your relationship fared during the pandemic? Not so great? Not much fun? You're not alone. Nicole McLeod, clinical counselor, can help with the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind. And why is consent and porn literacy and knowing body parts important for children to know? A sex educator explains. And finally, why is a lack of intimacy so dangerous for your relationship? I'll tell you why. The Sunday Night Health Show starts now. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Nicole McLeod is my guest. She is a registered clinical counselor in private practice in West Vancouver, British Columbia. She focuses on couples and individuals open to creating a more fulfilling life. Her approach is informed by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind, the developmental model, and attachment theory. Her website is coastalmind.com. Tonight, Nicole McLeod is here to talk about the impact of the pandemic on relationships, how it's affected everyone, and how you are not alone. She has some simple practices that can give your relationship a boost. Good evening, Nicole. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. I love your show. Oh. You are very loved across the country. Oh, you're too kind. You're too sweet. I'm <laughs> sure about that. <laughs> um, so these have been tough times for all of us. And uh, you have a clinical practice. What have you seen in your clinical practice over the last 18 months or so with what has happened with couples? And how did they do? I, I imagine it was all over the place. Yeah, yeah, it actually, it really was. There was such a cross range of, you know, some couples were actually really thriving, but many others were struggling. And, you know, there's some really good reasons for that. I mean, since the lockdown, people had to go suddenly into um, isolation or, you know, having huge disconnect from family and friends, from their own coworkers. And a lot of these things that people set up and couples had set their lives up so they had, um, you know, great outlets, going to gyms and community centers. So all of that was stopped so suddenly. And I mean, we are tribal people. We're supposed to be in relation. So to take that away, I mean, just that cost a lot of stress. And then, you know, all the stressors, um, illness, the fear of COVID. And while it was so important that we got so many updates and those numbers from Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry every week or every day, I think people who were a bit prone to being fearful, it amplified it for them. But I would say one of the biggest things that I saw in my practice and, you know, throughout other colleagues saw it too, was what happened in terms of monotony. So this is the, the couple that, you know, one of them maybe worked out of the house and they were used to every day coming home and there was some freshness. But that day in, day out got pressurized with homeschooling, um, you know, a lot of stress between worrying about job loss and relationships got stagnant. They got stale. So it, it, it took a big toll, but fortunately this wasn't for everybody. You know, some, some couples, they actually started to thrive and this was interesting to see. So I was you know, constantly looking around at what were these couples doing? How were some of them thriving? And, you know, I asked lots of questions. And some people were finding that simply getting outside and playing was what the through line for them was. They were being together because they couldn't go out and do typical dates like movies, dinners, 
And when everything got locked down, people started to go for walks a little bit more. I mean, even in our little neighborhood, it's pretty quiet. We started seeing more and more people pass by and they were connected. They were together. You know, I have an elderly couple that I worked with and they started going for drives to the beach and having picnics. So there was a playful component that was starting to merge as well. So getting outside, being together and being playful were sort of the three biggest through lines I saw. And we talk about getting outside. Are you talking about ecotherapy by any chance? Yeah, exactly. So ecotherapy, it's also called green therapy, um, forest bathing, all these awesome terms. And it really is about being in nature. And now, you know, you can get out in nature and not really be in nature. I've certainly done that myself. I've tried to go for a run and I've been stuck in my head the whole time. But when you can get really, really present in nature and pay attention to your senses, there's tons of studies and research to show that, you know, depression rates start to drop, anxiety gets a little bit less, um, you know, blood pressure, all sorts of processes improve. And it's really an opportunity to get away from all the urban distractions, all the, you know, sirens and cars. And when we can get away from that, we can get a little more quiet and get into our inner world. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah. I just wanted um, to ask you, um, yeah. do you think you mentioned um, that we had our lives all set up and people were going to the gym and date nights and all this kind of thing. Do you think we took or couples took their lives for granted before the pandemic? And do you think there's a risk as we reemerge into society and take off the masks and get back to our old lives, perhaps go back into the office? Do you think that there's a risk that couples will uh, take it for granted again and have a short memory? Or do you think there's room for some gratitude about, you know, the real meaning of life? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I, I'm really hoping I've seen that some people are choosing the, some of the couples that have really thrived, they, they've chosen actually not to go back to that hectic pace and to really honor and put some nice boundaries around kind of couple time. So making time together and being really playful. And, you know, that idea of being playful isn't, wasn't so easily readily available to them. So it was almost like a forced pause. Um, so a lot of people say, you know, what, what is play? You know, what, what does that even really mean? And it's not the easiest one to answer. When I noticed that in the couples that were doing better, I was bringing it into therapy and they said to me, well, I, I don't actually know how to play. What do you mean by that? And it's not a place that we come through by thinking about it. It's not something that goes on your to-do list. It's more a feeling about it. So I really hope that we can take some of the good things, hopefully that's come from COVID, and keep on with those. So teaching people how to play wasn't about um, guiding them through. It was, you know, getting outside and helping them access what it feels like to be in their body and I mean, my husband and I just wasn't even too long ago. We had had one of those hectic days. We were doing that rat race thing, one thing after the other. And he leads a really stressful job. We've got lots of kids at home and we took a walk up to the stream and we had the dogs with us. And and suddenly things kind of shifted in there um, when we got really present and noticing each other being playful and splashing 
it was a big shift and getting into ourselves, it can bring that opportunity. So I do think couples may, you know, take some of that tendency to be really hectic and slow down. And and that play, when you talk about play, is it um, uh, an attitude uh, versus playing something like, you know, some couples might look at each other and think play, what are we going to play? You know, like (laughs) play, you know, tennis and that might be foreign to them, but is it, is it more just being light and being vulnerable and being happy and being in the moment uh, as opposed to having an added pressure? Yeah, exactly. So it's not, I mean, you could be playing a game, but it's not scheduling it in. So it's more about, like, we, we actually have a brain center. We have a play center in our brain where it's guiding us to be playful. So just like we have an emotional center in our brain to be looking out for fear, we don't schedule it in that we're going to be going for a walk and then I'll feel fearful when I come around this corner. Something happens and we feel that way. So why play is so important is that when we can get really present, we can feel what it's like to have that urge to, you know, maybe you're washing the car and suddenly a water fight happens. Um, maybe you're you know, looking at your partner while they're making breakfast and you might walk by and give them a tap on the butt because you are present. So it, it, it's also like a really youth-dependent thing. So use it or lose it. When, when we're not being playful, it gets really difficult. And with all the stressors of the past year with the pandemic, it was really difficult for people to access that, particularly if they weren't playful as, as children and that wasn't available to them. And, and maybe um, if they weren't playful prior to the pandemic in their relationship, would it be yeah. more difficult for them to become? And, and I would imagine it's something that you would have to make a concerted effort toward and it, and starting with being present in the relationship, present in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for the people that it isn't readily available, I can think of one of my most favorite couples I work with. They came in because she was an over-functioner. He was an under-functioner. Um, and this, these are really good people. And they set up their lives with a lot of predictability and, and you know, uh, routine and both professionals. So that looks really good. And at times, though, it could get a bit stagnant. So talking to her about play was actually really triggering. Um, if you haven't had a childhood where you had that safeness and connectedness, talking about play, it, it's like there's no blood flow to that part of your brain. So we had to go really slow. We had to really be respectful and understand that for her, she didn't have that predictability when she was really young. It was chaotic and play was dangerous. So starting to build that concept really slowly and instead of, you know, like we had, I had done, gone for a big walk in the forest and was splashing in the stream, for her going for a walk and maybe dipping her toe in the stream that's a slow, gentle way to warm up to the idea to being playful. So and I can't underscore enough about the beginning of it is being present. And when you are present, then the opportunities to be playful, they present themselves. So, you know, you could be driving in the car with your partner and a really good song comes on. Turn it up a little bit. Let it get into your soul and see what happens. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that one. Um, I you mentioned overfunctioners and underfunctioners, and and sometimes yeah. we feed off our partners, or you know, uh, as they say, the opposites attract, or or one you know can handle it all, and then the other, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's persistent throughout the entire relationship, but there can be times when um, one is overdoing and the other is underdoing as a result of the one. Uh, overdoing, but how did people who are quite different or react to stress differently um, or overfunction and underfunction, how did they fare in the pandemic? Who was it more difficult on? The more controlling type of person, the more anxious type of person? You know, did they have some tendencies prior to that set them up for more difficulty when a pandemic comes your way? Because <laughs> it's not every day, but these days yeah. it is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some of their some of their core traits are certainly going to emerge and some of the problems and the tensions are going to likely unmask. So what I saw is the overfunctioners, let's just call them the people that are really on the ball. Um, Not that the underfunctioners aren't on the ball, but they're a little more chaotic. They're a little more spontaneous. But the overfunctioners, they're really going to take in all that news. And while, you know, it, it is important that we know what's happening, what's going on with the Delta variant, it made it so much harder for them because their their nervous system, their central nervous system was always a little bit torqued. It was always a little bit up. So, and then that was often the topic of conversation. And, the, you know, they... they say, let's say the playful side, the the more spontaneous one, they don't really want that. They want to park some of that and they want to just have some fun. So it did, it did create some tension, Um, but tension necessarily isn't a bad thing. And, you know, to take it back to play when we can learn to recruit that neural network in our brain and learn to practice being playful, it isn't a switch but we certainly start to increase our capacity for more play, which then is going to bring some more connectedness. And then to go back to your point, when there's a bit of a mismatch there and a lot of tension during the, the pandemic, they started to build a really good goodwill cushion so that they can actually weather some of the difficulties. And I was talk to my couples about this idea about the kind of time intention. It's almost like when you're, if you're training for something, and if you're you know, learning to be a long-distance runner or you're building muscle or you're a person who goes and does yoga and you're learning to hold a stronger plank, there's always that moment when it gets a little bit intense and you want to step out. That's the moment when things are tense and they're difficult, when a couple is having some conflict, when actually, if you can get back into your body, all the treasures, all the hidden gems are inside and you've built that closeness that you can have a difficult conversation and say the things that are really important to you. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Nicole McLeod is my guest. She's a registered clinical counselor. She practices in West Vancouver, British Columbia. She deals with couples and individuals. And her approach is informed by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind. Nicole, thanks for staying on the line. I, I know you also work with the developmental model and attachment theory, but tell me, um, and for the listeners too, what is uh, what do you mean by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind? Who understands yeah, the ab- mind? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, um, 
I have been so fortunate to, well, I read a lot and did a lot of courses with Dr. Dan Siegel and went down to California to do some training with him. So he really looks at integrating and a big piece of his approach is integrating um, our left hemisphere with our right hemisphere. So our analytical side with our creative side, the top down, so our prefrontal cortex with our, you know, our really instinct driven um, amygdala. And he says when we're, when we're at our best, our brain and our mind are like an orchestra. So when things are synchronous versus asynchronous, when we aren't getting, um, we're not, he has this fabulous hand model of the brain. And if you can picture making a fist and then some in there, that's your amygdala. That's where all your fight, flight, freeze, and your emotions and dissociation, all that is in there. And when you get triggered, and really dysregulated, you flip your lid and you're firing from there. So with a lot of mindful awareness, um, then we can kind of keep that prefrontal cortex a bit more in check. And it's the place where we think. It's the place where we make decisions. So in my practice with individuals and couples, I spend a lot of time in terms of, you know, psychoeducation. And people really like to understand what's going on. Um, they really enjoy because it's it's power. Knowledge is power for them, and then they have a bit more governance over making some choice for themselves and understanding there's things that they can do when their sympathetic nervous system is activated, and how to bring their parasympathetic nervous system back online. Just deep breaths, being still, getting into their body. Absolutely, you know, and that's such a big issue in so many relationships where you know, one or both may lose it. They may get triggered uh, by something that, you know, they might get offended. They might be particularly sensitive or something that happened in childhood. Um, and uh, and that is absolutely correct. Nicole, we're going to have to have you back on the program to dig a little deeper into that issue because anger in a relationship expressed in an unhealthy manner um, can be very toxic. How can people get in touch with you if they would like more information? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to my website, coastalmind.com. And if there's questions from tonight, you can get on there. There's a get in touch page on there as well. And I'm happy to ask any or offer any solutions to other questions. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure having you. And, and I know that you have provided great information to get couples who may be suffering out there on, on the road to playfulness, if nothing else. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. I am super excited about my next guest. She is amazing. She teaches people about nurturing safe, fulfilling, and pleasurable sex lives. That means destigmatizing protective methods, decentering beauty from whiteness, using the Oxford comma, and deconstructing porn. My guest is Justine Angfonte. She has a master's in education and also a master's in public health. And she has quite the story to share with you this evening. Good evening, Justine. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Uh, now, before we get into your, your story and, and how you caught my attention, which I, I wish I had caught your attention, you had caught my attention before, but uh, you were very busy teaching uh, many children in the city of New York at some of the more Tony uh, private schools about sexual health. Uh, you also teach about porn literacy, consent, 
Um, so I would like to ask you, first and foremost, why is it important to teach children properly about sexual health? Because if we do, we are able to get them to exercise body agency. And I think that's really at the core of uh, comprehensive sex education. And because it is so missing in our culture, we have such a repressed society around sexuality and still perpetuating that taboo that's really preventing us from being safe um, and having fulfilling relationships. And you talk about being safe, and that's very much tied to sexual abuse, isn't it? Uh, you talk Absolutely, about and the prevention of. Yes, and, and that's really what I'm interested in in a, in a huge way because it is such a problem in our world. Um, you educate children and have done a number of educational programs at some of the top private schools in the U.S. where senators' children might go to school and, and billionaires' children might attend school. Uh, and we're going to get to that. And yet they had had difficulty with you teaching about consent. Why is it important to teach children um, about appropriate touching, especially with family members? Because we want them to know who has a right to be around their body boundaries and who's allowed to enter those body boundaries. And it's not something that is unique to, to young people, but if they don't know those concepts at a young age, it's hard for them to start to understand it when they're adults. And the stakes are always big when it has to do with interacting with somebody else's body. And yet we tend to really dismiss the importance of it when uh, the human being is as young as a child because we expect them to just obey or go along with it or do whatever an adult is telling them to do. And that ultimately makes them very vulnerable. Absolutely. And in some families, there can be inappropriate touching. Maybe children don't want to be tickled. Maybe children don't want to be uh, picked up and thrown around or touched and or hugged uh, by grandparents or especially grandfathers at times. Um, tell me a little bit more about that and why it's important to essentially teach children that they have a voice about that. Yeah. I mean, many of us know that, you know, young children are sponges. They absorb so much of what they see and are exposed to um, are in their environment. And when they are told that their no or their stop or I don't like that means nothing because the behavior continues, we're already telling them that their words don't actually carry any power. And that's a scary thing to really realize when we see them grow up into being a middle schooler, a high schooler, and into their adulthood, not recognizing that words actually have meaning. And we want to make sure that not only do they feel like they can protect themselves and assert their boundaries, but that they can also learn to protect and respect other people's boundaries should they say the same things like no, stop, or I don't like it. And and we see this uh, in families. We see sexual abuse occurs in families. In fact, it's most common that uh, sexual abuse occurs with somebody that the child knows. Um, so what are some of the strategies that you teach children to prevent this? Because I, I know that so many people suffer as adults uh, when they have experienced sexual abuse as a child. And so how can we prevent that? I think one of the first things to, to remind people or inform people for the first time, if they haven't heard this yet, is that the whole stranger danger education is, 
is really limited because as you had just said, Maureen, it really is happening more times within people uh, that you have interacted with so often or people that are even related to you. So yes, we want them to have um, a conscientiousness around strangers around them, but ultimately the statistics are showing that oftentimes a lot of mistreatment and abuse is happening amongst people that are already in their lives. And so that's like, I think the first thing that needs to be understood. Um, the second would really be just also understanding what your body is telling you. And so when we're teaching young people already about early warning signs within their body, what are the internal signals that are being sent to them that something is off? We're giving them the opportunity to really listen and get to safety. So, for example, if we're teaching, you know, a child, a, a six-year-old, for example, um, that an early warning sign would be their heart is racing, but they haven't just, you know, done a lap around a park. Their heart is racing and they're just standing still. Or they're sweating, but it's not hot out. Or they have goosebumps, but it's not cold out. These are all your body's ways of really taking a look at its environment and assessing its uh, threat level. And we want them to understand that if you're feeling any of these internal physiological changes in your body, your body's trying to tell you something. And instead of, you know, tempering it, we need to listen to what might be going on. Is there a threat that is from another person, a place we're in, or a behavior or an action that is occurring that just feels a little off? We want them to listen to that signal so that they can get themselves to safety. And, and that's a nice segue into uh, secrets versus surprises, what you, which yeah. is also something that you educate about. Because oftentimes, well, well, you can explain it. Tell me the difference between that secret and surprise and why it's important to teach children the difference. Sure. So surprises, young you know, children are very, very used to um, using and seeing the happy surprises, a birthday party, a surprise gift. Um, a, a surprise person, you know, um, coming into the house. Um, and the difference between a secret and a surprise is that with a surprise, everyone will find out eventually. And that's not to say that every single surprise is going to be a safe one. But when we're talking about happy surprises that, you know, young people are exposed to, they're often thinking about things like a birthday, a gift, a person that's showing up, and it brings them a lot of joy. Now, when it comes to a secret, however, there can be secrets that are genuinely safe. But for the most part, you really don't want a young child to be holding a secret of a grown-up in their life. So if it's something like, I want to treat you out to ice cream, don't tell your mother that I took you out, right? That's very different than the types of secrets that a grown-up might be saying that might involve some aspect of abuse where don't tell anybody that this is something that you and I do. This is just between you and I. That can get very confusing for a child when we are telling them that secrets are okay between them and a grown-up because, you know, the ice cream situation just seems just as um, innocuous. And so it's really important that when they're when we're talking about early warning signs and secrets, that they're combining those two lessons of, all right, a surprise is something everyone's going to know about eventually, but a secret, no one ever finds out. It always stays between me and another grown-up. And what does my body tell me about those secrets? 
And that's what we want them to be able to act on and say, this doesn't feel right. And be able to assert to that grown-up, I don't keep secrets for grown-ups, or it's not safe for kids to keep secrets. And so part of what I do in my classes is I teach young people to actually assert themselves in role-play examples, where they actually say these words aloud so that if and when it happens to them, it won't be the first time that they're practicing that script. And uh, this, you, you spoke a little bit about um, the schools that you taught in, and we're going to get to the issue that, that uh, they had. Um, but you also educate around porn literacy. So why is it important to educate children and adolescents about porn literacy? There is a growing number of adolescents who are using pornography as their instruction manual in terms of how to understand sexuality, um, their changing bodies that are going through puberty, how to engage in intimate behaviors with other people, um, maybe learning a little bit more about what that type of behavior looks like or what their bodies are supposed to look like or who they're supposed to be attracted to. And it makes sense that they would turn to pornography where you have the safety of a screen to do so and most likely anonymously and easy access to it, especially in a culture where we're not talking about sexuality so freely and openly because of how taboo the topic is. And so we want to make sure that young people are recognizing that the mainstream pornography that they are getting free access to is not meant to educate them. It's meant to entertain people. And it's why there is an 18 and over, you know, um, limit to it. But we know they're accessing it well before 18 because their bodies are changing. They're feeling certain feelings about other people and having certain urges to explore that, which is all completely normal and natural. But we want to make sure that they're getting information that is in service of their safety, their fulfillment, and their pleasure. And oftentimes, mainstream pornography does not allow you to learn about safety, fulfillment, and pleasure because of how it is produced and what they're leaving out, like consent being modeled or protective methods being used or talked about or how to actually build intimacy as opposed to reduce intimacy to just a physical act. Um, When it comes to body parts, we're seeing very specific types of bodies in mainstream porn that aren't always depicting natural or, um, or, uh, or body types that our young people in middle school are, are, are having. And so we want to make sure that they are able to really differentiate and be literate about what they're exposed to in the same way that we're teaching about commercials and what they might be implying by the types of actors they're using or the types of behaviors those actors are engaging in. And especially when we're talking about mainstream pornography, which puts races into different genre categories, it really amplifies a lot of racialized sexual violence that we would not want people to be adopting into their real life. And yet we do see this happening with a lot of adults engaging on dating apps or engaging in different sexual behaviors, using what they're learning in porn and now applying it to their own personal experiences. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here. My guest is Justine Angfonte. She was the health and wellness director at the Dalton School, a very prestigious $55,000 U.S. a year Manhattan private school, and she resigned following backlash 
at some lessons about pornography that she gave to children. Justine, thanks for hanging on the line. Uh, tell me a little bit about what happened. It, it's very interesting. You'd been at the school for 11 years. You had been providing se- uh, sex education and health education. Um, you had spoken about gender identity and consent and pornography in the past, but this time it was different. What happened? So let me correct the record a little bit because there's been a lot of different news sources that have been uh, describing what had happened, and I think they're confusing a lot of what, what uh, actually went down. So I worked at the Dalton School for nine years as the director of health and wellness, and there were two different lessons that um, were written about me from the New York Post. The first was about pornography literacy at a different school called Columbia Prep. And, and then at the Dalton School that they wrote about was a first grade lesson on private parts are private. So I did resign from the Dalton School after a nine-year tenure there. And it was as a result of feeling that the loud voices of a powerful few at Dalton really made my efforts there untenable. And it was a lot more than just the first grade lesson I had taught there. And it was really just building up on um, really being um, torn down by a lot of the criticism from the independent school network at large um, at really um, not feeling like they could support anti-racist work or comprehensive sex education um, in a way that their board of trustees were comfortable with. And that was something that Um, you know, really started to wear me down. And because I had already had a uh, a seed planted with my freelance career for the last several years, I thought it was time that I could now spread my wings fully as opposed to having them clipped um, by pursuing freelance full time. And, And so, Justine, was it the parents that were upset with this particular education for the grade one students? Yes. Uh, I have very supportive uh, division directors who have always been um, a supporter of the content that I brought in. They were very much a part of the hiring process to expand my department to have full-time educators teaching alongside um, me. Um, and it was really a small handful of parents who were really critical about the work that we were doing, despite the amount of parent transparency with my parent workshops throughout the year in these nine years. Um, and curriculum nights where they were informed as to what would be covered. Um, but it was, I think, a combination of parents really being inside of our classrooms for the first time ever, uh, you know, in Zoom, in their own homes, and hearing, you know, some of the conversations, and then really pulling it out of context, and then turning it into what they believed was a masturbation lesson, when it was simply a private parts are private lesson. And you actually had never, is this correct? You had never used the term masturbation with these grade one correct. students? Yeah, it and, wasn't and, a part of the lesson, and it was uh, therefore not at all the focus. And so might it be safe to say that the parents weren't paying attention before, and maybe they started to pay attention during the pandemic and started I, to get panicky <laughs> and fearful? Uh, yeah, I think for some parents that definitely would have been the case. Um, you know, I think... You know, they're, they're just a little bit more involved now that they could hear what was actually going on in the classroom, which if they wanted to, you know, observe a class in person before, you know, the pandemic, I would have absolutely welcomed it. I'm not ashamed of any of the work that I've done. Um, I do have a lot of disappointment in how they misconstrue the content that I'm doing, especially with how transparent I am about it. It's important that parents are partnering 
with uh, the teachers on all curricula. And it was very intentional on my part to make that the case from the beginning of the school year through the end of the school year. And none of that had changed. Right. And and it sounds like the uh, parents needed some sex education. And and in fact, I can actually um, confirm that because I probably wouldn't be in business myself if, uh, but mm-hmm. I'm in large part educating adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s about sexual health. So it sounds like they sure. would have benefited from going to either one of these private schools. Now, you also taught at Columbia Prep, which is the oldest non-sectarian independent school in New York City. It's been around since 1764. You felt that that school let you down as well, and you also feared for your safety. What happened there? I mean, that's shocking. Yeah, so um, I think it was around March or so. It might have been in February that the school psychologist in the high school reached out to me, um, inviting me to do a talk on healthy relationships. And um, I had not done a speaking engagement at that school before. Um, And so we did a Zoom call to talk about the different options. And I proposed three to them based on what their 11th graders um, had already covered Um, in their years prior. So I had proposed a sexual consent um, presentation, a sexual decision-making presentation, and a pornography literacy presentation. And one of their psychologists had actually seen me do the pornography literacy presentation uh, as a training to educators at, um, at a conference prior. And so specifically proposed that it be that lesson. Um, and their um, peers had agreed, the other two psychologists, and so that was the plan. They asked me for a parent blurb and a parent title to be able to send to the parents ahead of time and let them know that this was coming. Um, and I did the presentation to the 11th graders over Zoom. It was extremely well received with a lot of gratitude coming in through the chat. Um, and even followed by um, a, a letter in solidarity of the work that I was doing. So I was really disappointed and frustrated um, by how it was portrayed in the media because it really sounded like literally two families that were opposed to this curriculum. Um, and they took the measure of reporting it to the press as opposed to critiquing it to their administration or you know, reaching out to me about more content um, or giving me the benefit of doubt that maybe what I was doing was actually age appropriate and medically accurate and relevant um, to the student population. So um, after the, um, the lesson occurred, it was a couple weeks later that the Post wrote a piece and the head of school in the New York Post article um, had been quoted saying that this is not a lesson that they knew was coming, which was really disappointing since it was exactly what they had ordered from the menu. Right. And it's in line with what sex educators would say and also with the current national sex education standards and the World Health Organization's international technical guidance on sexuality education. But did you experience death threats as well? And and, um, was your private information shared? Um, so I, uh, unfortunately, I'm still getting those death threats, Maureen. My, my inbox is, um, is full uh, with a variety of different messages from trolls, and that's also the case with uh, my, my social media. And so I was um, really jarred to see how polarizing, um, you know, this news has, has really impacted people. I'll get 
you know, a, a message of immense gratitude from a complete stranger reading up on, you know, what the New York Times had said about my, um, my career. And then that would follow an email from another stranger who would describe how they would shoot me and kill me. And so it's, is- it's just it's really jarring to see such a polarization in our society about how personal sexuality is and clearly how how it hits home for a lot of people in in a in a very wide spectrum of ways um and so that continues that is just horrible i am so sorry that you have experienced this i mean it's just shocking you know i don't know what the world has come to but uh, we can see polarization along political lines, along religious lines, along sexual lines, along race lines. I mean, it is just terrible. Um, but, you know, I, I have to commend you for resigning because, you know, you you had your voice and you expressed your voice and, and you said, you know, you set a healthy boundary. And that's fantastic. What are you planning to do now, Justine? Thanks. Yeah, resigning was hard because I have some very close relationships and continue to at Dalton. Um, but really, the people who have the decision power were uh, the ones that made my decision quite easy um, in, in terms of having to leave. And so my plans going forward are to um, produce a podcast that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. Um, I've been wanting to write a, a few books for quite some time. Um, but I would really also love to uh, continue with my speaking engagements while also consulting for TV shows and movies. Um, mainly because I really believe that media creates consciousness. And if we can uh, really create a consciousness that is health inclusive and sex positive, then I really feel like we would be getting sex education out there in a way that is much more accessible um, and really leveraging entertainment as a way to um, really put out good, healthy information that is in service of safety, fulfillment and pleasure. Well, you're such an inspiration, and I, and I want to tell you, I promise you, there is a silver lining, a giant silver lining to your uh, bit of a black cloud that you've experienced with people who, you know, are living in fear. So I, I'm sorry for the things you've experienced, but I'm also very happy for you because I know that there is a huge pot of gold at the end of your rainbow. Thank you, Maureen. I appreciate that. And how can people get in touch with you, Justine? Sure. My website is justinefonte.com and on social media, I'm at just, oh, sorry. My social media is at I'm Justine AF. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll get you back on the program. And uh, certainly I would hire you if I were the uh, headmaster at one of these private schools, but uh, I'm not. Anyway, have a wonderful evening. and Thanks so much for joining me this evening. You as well. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. The final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maybe you're getting strokes, maybe you're not. But you know what? Strokes are a good thing. Not in that way. Not a medical stroke. Not a cerebrovascular stroke. No, 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 no. Strokes from your partner. You know, I my uh, clinical practice is in large part sexless marriage. That's what people come to see me for. But there are many, many problems that... Um, are the what that we find out are the reasons for those sexless marriages and you know it's important to understand that an emotionally supportive and caring marriage is a good thing that's great and that's wonderful and a lot of people present to me and they say that they're best friends and i always get nervous when brides are like oh i'm marrying my best friend i'm like ah don't um or somebody 
you know, refers to their should be lover um, as their best friend. But, you know, that's great to be emotionally supportive, to care about your partner, to love to do the same things and, um, you know, all that good stuff. But when your marriage lacks physical affection or sexual activity, and I don't just mean intercourse, I mean things like touch and caressing and massaging and just, you know, lying down together, wrapping your legs around each other while you're watching Netflix, that kind of thing. There are so many problems that can emerge if you don't have that physical connection, that physical affection, that desire to be with your partner, that desire to put other things on the back burner, not the sex life on the back burner. Because when you put your sex life on your back burner, on the back burner, there are a number of things that can happen in the relationship. And one thing is you may experience less emotional intimacy. And this is counterintuitive, I know, because people often come to me and they say they're so connected, they love their partner, they're their best friends, but they actually don't have that emotional intimacy. They think that they do, but because the physical intimacy is lacking, that physical intimacy is what is needed to cement the emotional bond. And to be honest with you, many couples will come to see me together. These days it's on Zoom. And then they will say, actually, can I see you alone? Um, is that okay? Is that normal? And the partner usually agrees. And then what happens is the person who wants to see me alone tells me some deep, dark secret that they have not shared with their best friend, quotes, uh, if you will, Um because without that physical intimacy, without that sexuality, that playfulness, couples may also have a less intense emotional connection and they may keep secrets from their partner. It may be related to shame. It may be related to desire for somebody else, which is actually okay. You know, there's, it's, it's not a bad thing to maybe be attracted to somebody else. You cannot be attracted to one person for your entire life. Um, and so fantasy is normal and there's all those sorts of things. And you want to share that with your partner as well. The other thing that a sexual or that a sexless marriage, um, that's where you want to get to is sexual. Okay. <laughs> um, but the other thing that will always rear its ugly head in a sexless marriage is the exacerbation of the underlying problems that you have. So there's a number of things that will lead to a lack of sexual intimacy. And so you might have medical issues. And in fact, you have a great understanding with your partner during this time of medical issues. For example, your sex life may be altered or it may be different or it may be non-existent at that time. Um, and you know what? That's okay. If if a couple is okay with not being sexual, that's fine too. There are other ways, but you've got to have that touch, that physical connection, that literally hanging out, that mindfulness, being in the moment, being present with your partner. That's why they call it the present. It is because it is a gift and it is definitely a gift to an intimate relationship. Now you may also be experiencing stress. You may be going through financial stress or you may be having conflict with your partner or the kid just might be, be too demanding and uh, take up too much of your time. And so then you don't have enough time together. But when you don't discuss the causes of a lack of sexual intimacy, then those underlying problems, whatever they may be, and I probably didn't even name them, 
all because you can experience so many, then those underlying problems may continue and they may actually even create more tension in your relationship or this underlying tension. And you know what that can lead to, because I've certainly talked about that on the program in the past and on my TEDx talk, No Sex Marriage, Masturbation, Cheating, Loneliness and Shame, which has had about 28 million views five years later when they told me nobody would watch it showed them. Um, but you know, people are interested in the subject because so many people experience this subject and if hadn't, haven't had a chance to check out that YouTube video, I'm really not vying for views. I am, but I am telling you, if you want a little entertainment and a few laughs, go and read the comment section. It's awesome. I think there's like 20 or 30,000 comments on there. Anyway, the other thing that will infiltrate your marriage, if you are in a marriage or relationship that lacks physical intimacy, that lacks sex, quite frankly, there may be resentment that builds up when someone feels that their needs for physical intimacy are being denied they actually may develop resentment. We don't talk about resentment enough. And resentment is one of those emotions that is so damaging to any relationship. And in fact, it can corrode a relationship. And with resentment, people often get inside their own heads and they are just, you know, they make it worse. They make it seem worse inside their head. They get very, very upset. They don't share the resentment often with the person that it matters to. And the person in the other person of the couple, you know, may not even realize that that their partner is building up resentment for them. And it can be for a number of reasons that they build up this resentment, but it can start with not feeling wanted, not feeling loved, not feeling cared for, not feeling caressed, which leads us to feelings of rejection. When somebody feels that their partner is totally disinterested in physical int intimacy or the physical advances the sexual advances when all is well in the relationship is not being reciprocated, then they will feel rejected. And this can lead to loneliness. And as I've said, loneliness kills. It increases peripheral vascular resistance, increases blood pressure, and can actually lead to stroke and early death. If people realize the impact of their decision not to be. And quite frankly, it is a decision that people make. I, I I cannot even believe some of the stories that I've heard. I should say I heard it all. Um, but I mean, I know people who have been married for 25 years and actually described to me, oh, they thought their husband was just so handsome and so amazing. He's the best husband. He's this, he's that, but never have sex with them. Had sex a little bit before they were married but no sex since, or people that have gone 10 years without any physical touch, physical connection, physical caressing, nothing. And so this can actually lead to depression. Um, it, it makes a person feel so rejected on a very, very deep level. And so it is essential that you work together as a couple to strengthen your connection and overcome those feelings of rejection. Now, one of the big reasons, I don't know if you were listening to the segment before about sex education, but sex education is critical. And so many people lacked appropriate sex education. And so there is this shame and there is this fear um, they may have experienced sexual abuse, and that will certainly impact sexual desire, uh, regardless of whether you're in a healthy relationship or not. Um, so it's very important to actually address this issue because, as I said, um, 
sex, you know, can lead to high blood pressure, a heart attack. It can actually increase pain. And so, so many people, especially as they age, and believe me, sex doesn't stop as people age. In fact, it can get better for a lot of people, but sex releases a hormone that raises the pain threshold. And so if you are somebody that's having knee pain or hip pain or back pain or any kind of pain, you know, a little romp in the hay might actually increase your pain threshold and make you feel so much better. Sex is also great for stress relief, helpful to um, get you to sleep. It can be better than a lot of the um, medications that people are taking. I really hate to see people going to medications when they, what they can really do is they can go outside, go for a walk, exercise, have a little physical connection and, and really pay attention to that aspect of your marriage because it is so important. I cannot tell you just how important it is. And, you know, of course, I've spoken about this as well. There are so many risks to being in a sexless marriage and infidelity is one of them. It's such a common reason uh, that drives people to look outside of their marriage. And believe me, people are looking outside of their marriage all the time. I've seen this, I've been in practice for a number of years now, and I have heard this over and over again, where they present with a sexless marriage, the couple, and one of the two is either in a, another relationship outside of the marriage or has been in a relationship outside of the marriage. And, you know, it's just that the sex had fallen off the table. They had forgotten about it. They got busy. People don't pay attention to their partners. And, and so they start to take them for granted or somebody feels like they're, they're just, you know, uh, just another doormat or they just feel like they're the maid. And so, and believe me, both men and women and they all cheat, all go outside of their relationships. Um, but there are reasons that people do that. And just to be clear, lack of sex does not justify infidelity. All I'm saying is that it is a risk. But what would be so important and so great if couples would be wise enough to talk directly about and resolve those issues that are related to the unmet sexual needs, the unmet sexual needs, say that three times, <laughs> um, did I, or just twice? Anyway, two, three times. But three times for the normal mind, unmet sexual needs. And if we think of that in terms of health, and so instead of thinking, oh, she always wants it and I'm too tired or he always wants it and, you know, uh, he's just whatever, um, he's just a horny little bugger, um, you know, instead of that, thinking of, thinking of more holistically about the person, about that person who wants to feel loved and wants to feel cared for and wants to have a little fun, quite frankly, and wants to just, you know, have a release and actually just a departure from the everyday stress and strain of life, you know, because we have so many um, stressors and strains, especially coming off of this pandemic, um, as we heard Nicole Meyer talking earlier about the issues that couples have had. Um, and it's so, and I've seen the same as well. You know, it started right at the beginning of the pandemic where people were just like, I think I married the wrong person. And um, I don't think I can stay with this person for, you know, through this pandemic. I can't be in lockdown with this particular person. Um, but it is largely around unmet sexual needs. And so if we think of somebody who doesn't want to feel lonely, somebody who wants to be healthy, somebody who wants to sleep well at night and actually have a better time 
uh, falling asleep, wants to be happy, somebody who wants to have less pain. Maybe you look at your partner and you think, you know, what are the fabulous things about my partner? Um, you know, and the other thing about desire is that a lot of people, women in particular, think that desire comes first and it doesn't. And the desire is actually responsive. You know, after a couple of years of being in the same relationship with somebody, you know, it's actually a responsive desire. And so it may be like, you don't feel like having sex, but you engage when everything else is good in the relationship. It's a, you're consenting mutual adults. Uh, there's no underlying conflict going on that neither one of you are talking about. Um, and, and so, and so you do engage, you accept your partner's sexual advances, or you actually make sexual advances toward your partner, because that's a big problem in a lot of relationships as well. One person makes all of the sexual advances, and then the other person is the one who decides yay or nay. Um, and so if you accept your partner's advances and you enjoy it, we call that uh, responsive desire. And so it's really a, an emotional, biopsychosocial model. Of, of desire that was developed by Dr. Rosemary Basson at the University of British Columbia at the BC Center for Sexual Medicine. And so it's just so important that um, you pay attention to this aspect of your relationships uh, out there, all of you in radio land who are thinking, hmm, you know, maybe I do deserve to have a good sex life. You, and maybe my sex life should be attended to. Um, and, it, and it's important to attend to your sex life, even if you think the rest of your marriage is good. Because if you're not having sex or you're having it too infrequently, and that's determined by you and your partner, the frequency is not something that you can read about in a book or ask the neighbors about. That is something best determined by you and your partner. You really need to talk to your spouse about it. I understand this is a sensitive subject, so please approach the topic carefully express your thoughts and feelings and, you know, and try and have this conversation outside of the bedroom. Um, you also want to be open to hearing the thoughts and feelings of your partner as well. And, and, you know, this way you can start on a pathway, a pandemic pathway, because it looks like it's carrying on for a little bit longer. Um, but working together, you can nurture your healthy sex life, which is great. And ultimately you will strengthen your marriage and increase your emotional and physical intimacy. And you know what? That, uh, that is good for everybody, quite frankly. Um, it's good for your, your children, and it's good for your friends, and it's good for your family, because when you're, people want you to be happy, and, and you know, you want yourselves to be happy. And so if you haven't been paying attention to your marriage lately or to the, the sex or the lack of sex in that marriage, I say it's time to do so. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.